Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. I have to rescue you. You look like you're having a senior moment up here for a minute. But I, I just stayed seated, let you work through it. I think that's the best way to do it, isn't it? Well, good morning. It is so good to see you. And if you're our guest, we are so glad that you are here today. This is a great morning. And I hope you, I hope you know one thing. I hope you know that God loves you. That's what I hope you know, that when you leave this place, there's just this strong sense of God's presence in your life because that's really why we come together. We come together because God is doing something in our lives. He's really making disciples, and then what we do is we go and we make disciples, and that is a great venture, isn't it? We have a lot of fun doing that, and I'm so, I'm so happy. I am so happy. And we do it in a lot of different places, a lot of different ways. We had our family camp this last week, and Ned and I got back... Um, about two hours, three hours before our Saturday evening service. So we were, we were gone for a few days and ran back in and spent time with our community here. But uh, when we were there, we just have a blast. And one of the things that just really struck me when I was with the families there is we're just seeing another younger generation come up. And, uh, and I remember when my kids were three, four, and five years old at the same camp, this very same camp, and then just watching parents try to corral their kids, I just was laughing. I was just having a good time saying, you know what, it's your turn now, man. I'm just going to sit here, have a good time, watch, talk, play. Uh, one of the Walton twins, I don't know which one because they both look alike, you know, and... Uh, uh, was playing with a ball and and uh, and he needed a, he needed someone like me to help him along. So we went. We were playing together and and I just started spinning the ball in my fingers. It was like he saw this for the very first time. He just went wow, and then he said, "Do it again, do it again." And so I spun it again. Wow! It was like each time was brand new for him. I want to be like that, you know? Every time I just come into God's presence, I want to think, wow, do it again, God. Just do it again. Do the miracles. Touch our lives. Change us. Because God does so well at that. He's the only one that can really transform us the way we need to be transformed. And with that said, I want you to do this. I want you to open your Bibles to James chapter 2. We're going to look at James chapter 2 together. We're in a study titled Authentic Faith. And that's really what James is all about, authentic faith. And in this chapter, in chapter 2, especially verses 1 through 13, it's probably one of the most controversial chapters in all the Bible throughout the centuries. And the reason is, is because James is talking about faith, but more than that, he's talking about the expression of faith. And so this created some tension, even in the early church, as the church progressed. And we want to address that, and I'm going to do that in just a moment. But James's main idea is really having that authentic faith alive in us. And to get the main idea in the book of James, I want to ask you a question. I've been starting every message, if you haven't noticed already, with a question And so the question here is, have you ever encountered something that at first seemed useful, but later you found out it was useless? Some things appear to be useful in the moment, but when you put them to work, they prove useless. Now, when I was thinking about that question, there were a few things that came to my mind. Things that used to be useful and then became useless. And I put a list together, and it began with 
The pet rock. How many remember the pet rock? I don't know if it was ever useful, but it sure is useless. And that's, that, that's something that you look at and you think, that's useless. How about a pen that doesn't work? I mean, you're frantic. You're trying to write something down. Every pen in your house has no ink. It's useless. How about Happy Meal toys? I mean, by the time the kids get them home, they are useless. How about a phone book? How many own phone books still? I don't know why. I mean, you've got to chop down 10 trees to get one phone book. But there's a lot of phone books still out there. Or here's another one. A man when a ball game is on. Useless. Just totally useless. I mean, can't get their attention. They don't talk to you. They're just, they're just useless. Or going into an elevator, and you want to close the door real quick, and you press the door close button. It never works. It doesn't, it doesn't close doors. That's useless. How about the old thigh master? Anybody remember that? Useless, useless, useless. Cassette players. Anyone still have cassette players? I still do. I have a cassette player. Uh, I just have no cassettes to play in the cassette player. Uh, But those are things that maybe at one time used to be useful, and now they're useless. Now I want you to listen to what James says in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 2. He says this, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? He's talking about a day that had gone by. The basis of, of, of Israel's faith and, and belief. And that remember that in the Hebrew there's no just one word for faith. The word is faithful. So it's the expression of faith. You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And then you look at verse 26, and it just kind of blows you out of the water. And this really is the the main idea. If you'd put up verse 26, the main idea here, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. What is he saying? What is James saying here? He's saying, listen, faith without the expression of works is useless. That That it's dead, that it doesn't work. And because these verses... In James chapter 2, many believe that Paul and James contradicted each other. And I want to straighten just a few things out. And if you pull out your bulletin, you can take some notes. Remember what we're saying right now. But, but, but he, he, uh, he talks, James talks in such a way that seems like it contradicts the Apostle Paul. So does Paul teach that good deeds are not important? Does James teach that good deeds earn our way into heaven? Well, here's the accurate understanding. Paul and James really agree but emphasize different things, and that's what you need to understand here. In fact, what did James do? In five chapters, James did what Paul did in the book of Romans in 16 chapters. I think when I read through them, they're just pretty similar. They're just emphasizing different things, and that's what we need to know. Here's the thing that you need to understand about how they emphasize their different aspects of understanding faith. Paul teaches that good deeds done before faith in Jesus cannot earn your way to heaven, that you cannot work your way to heaven. Salvation is a gift. It's a free gift. It's from God's grace. He's given us 
salvation abundantly. James teaches that good deeds done after faith in Jesus is evidence that our faith is authentic, that our faith is alive. So you see the the different emphasis here between Paul and James. And then we want to set the scene a bit for those that may not have been here the last couple weeks. If you were, then this is kind of a review for you. But what did we discover? We discovered that James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, tells us how to handle or persevere trials from the outside. That perseverance, that endurance is something that develops maturity in us. And that along the way, when we're enduring trials, when we're persevering, we make a choice to be joyful. And that's what, what, that's what James says. That you make it, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you go through these kinds of trials. And then James 1, 13 through 27 tells us how to resist temptation from the inside. We talked about that last week. When we talked about temptation and that all of us face temptation. I asked a few of you to raise your hand and a few of you were a little hesitant. And I just counted it as a pulled muscle in your arm or something like that. But all of us, every one of us, every one of us face temptation in life. And that's why James is so valuable to us. What he says is so straightforward, so direct. And he talks to us about temptation and how to deal with that. Today what we're going to do is we're going to look at verses 1 through 13 of James chapter 2. So we're moving on here. And he talks to us about fighting favoritism. Fighting favoritism. When I was in elementary school, we attended a, a, a local church and, and uh, a local elementary school, and we met a few people while we were in church, and it just so happened that this one family invited my family over for dinner. And I knew the daughter of the folks that invited us over, and we were friends, and we knew each other. We were acquaintances, and then we got invited over for dinner, and the doors, the front doors opened, and we walked in, and I'd never been in a house like this in all my life. It was a beautiful house. I mean, it was just a gorgeous house, had a lot of different things, and what I liked, it had a lot of toys. I mean, a lot of fun things, even for the guys, the older guys in the house. And what I found out when I went over to dinner at that person's house is that my friend's father owned the largest toy store sporting goods in the area. And I was just blown away. I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. This guy owns a toy store. I mean, this is every guy's dream. And to make it even better, it was Ron's toy store. I loved it. And I'm thinking, wow, I love this guy. I love this toy store. But as soon as I found out that her dad owned a toy store, I I wanted to be her best friend. I I wanted to get to know her a little more. And it changed my whole view, my whole view of her when I found out that her father's identity was kind of wrapped up in a toy store. What James speaks to in James chapter 2 is that some of that thinking had come into the church. That, that same kind of favoritism had entered into the church. And he says that in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing gold rings and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit on the floor by my feet, 
Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So why, why is this so important that there is no favoritism in the church? And the reason it's important is because the church is the instrument that God has chosen to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you have to know that in the early church days, and James was a leader in the church in those times, he saw something happening that he knew would compromise the gospel, authentic faith. And he was jealous for that. He said, listen, one of the things that's going to happen, if you start treating people with favoritism, then you are going to dilute the gospel. And that you're not going to represent Jesus Christ in a way that he deserves to be represented. And so he's saying no favoritism. No favoritism in the body of Christ. You see, the early church is really the benchmark of what church should be. I mean, when you look at the early church, it's pretty radical. I mean, you read, you read things that go on in the book of Acts, and it can rock your world. And I, I love this because this is setting us up for the series that we're going to go into in the fall. It's entitled, When God Moves, and we're going to study the book of Acts. So we've got to kind of fasten our seatbelts. This really lays a great foundation for us. Because when you look at the early church, and, and especially Acts chapter 2, verse 45, it says this. This is radical. It says they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. What was this? This was a radical economy. <laughs> I mean, these people were taking their faith seriously, and they were expressing that faith. And so they were taking care of people who had need. And then Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it says all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Now, now it would be one thing if I shared with you and you were in need of a car and I, you know, I let you, I let you have my 91 Cadillac, you know, kind of busted up, things don't work all together. It's one thing to say, hey, hey, here's the keys to this 91 Cadillac. It's another thing to throw you the keys to a Ferrari. But it says here in chapter 4 in Acts that, that they gave their possessions, that they gave the things that people needed to help them get through and help them understand what the authentic faith in Jesus really looks like. And then you read Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is radical. Not only a radical economy, but this was radical equality. You have to understand in those days, this is just blowing people out of the water because he says, hey, there's neither Jew nor Greek in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine how the Jews felt? <laughs> they might have felt demoted and the Gentiles felt per promoted, but they were all on this even playing field, neither slave nor free. And what's radical about this is during the time that James wrote this, there were more slaves than there were free people at the time. 53 million slaves during the time this was written. And so can you imagine a slave hearing this going, whoa, whoa. Man, I'll tell you what, you may get to church and you're all together. Now you're in common ground. I mean, we're all radical equality. 
And you might be a slave owner and you sit in that front pew. Guess who might be teaching you? Guess who might be an elder in the church? It might be your slave. This was just blowing people away. And then it says, man, there's neither male or female. Man, I'll tell you what. This was good news to the women of that day. It should be good news to everyone today. He's saying there's equality in Jesus Christ. The early church had a radical economy. They had a radical equality. It wasn't communism. It was communism. They had all things in common. Who? In Christ Jesus. Not everyone had the same income. Not everyone had the same resources. Not everyone lived in the same kind of house. But they had the same Jesus And Jesus made a difference in people's lives. James paints this picture, if you notice, of a rich guy coming into church and he talks about the rings on the fingers. Do you see that? He's he's speaking to to a very specific thing that went on in that day. Because one of the things that that, uh, the, the people did in the ancient world, and especially during the time of James, is to show how wealthy they were. I mean, to really show off. Uh, their stuff, they didn't have uh, nice cars to drive in, they didn't have big old, well some of them did, but it was in public, they would come out and they would wear rings, elaborate rings on their fingers. And when, when someone saw those rings, they knew, wow, these people, they have some coin. These people have some cash. In fact, there were some posers in that day too. What they would do is they could actually go rent rings to put on their finger. I'd like to have been in that business, rent a ring or something like that. But that's what they would do. They would put these rings, they would come in and they would hold their hands out like that. And when they walked into church, what people would do is they would see these rings. And this was a problem. This wasn't a problem being rich and having rings. It wasn't a problem being poor and having nothing. The problem was the church. It was how they favored the rich over the poor. And that's what James is addressing. So what James is saying to the church, and I'm going to put it in slang that we understand today, he's saying don't be blinded by the bling. And he says, when you see that bling, when you see those rings, when you see those clothes, don't be blinded by that. That you need to keep your focus on really what the gospel is all about. Why Jesus came. Who he set free. He set all of us free. He's given us all the grace. Not that we deserve anything, but he's given it to us. What was resulting by, by this... Um, way of viewing the rich over the poor in the church, there was this new seating arrangement, you know? So when the rich came into the church, they'd say, oh, brother, sister, come here and sit in front. Sit in front with us. And if you came in poor and you were wearing ragged clothes, they'd say, no, 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 you sit in the back. You can sit in the back or you can sit at our feet. And so there's this new arrangement that's taking place here a new seating arrangement in the church which was compromising the heart of the gospel and that was equality in Jesus Christ this was not just division and I want you to hear this this was not just division it was worse than that it was discrimination and Jesus addresses that in Matthew chapter 25 what does he say? He says, hey, you guys say you know me, but when I showed up in your presence, you know, and when I needed something to eat and when I needed something to drink, you turned me away. But then there was another side to this. He said, when I showed up in your presence, you 
gave me food, you gave me clothing, you gave me something to drink. And as you treated the least of these, so you treated me. Wow, this is amazing. What are we doing here? What, what we're doing here, and Jesus is saying, is when you feed those that need to be fed, when you give drink to those that need to give, have drink, you are doing that to me. James is telling us that Jesus was coming into the church and they were taking the Lord of the church and making him sit at the back of his own church. That's what, they were, that's what James is telling us here. James says that we can never discriminate. That we can't treat people differently based on their economy, based on the color of their skin, based on these things. That we, and even at work, how we might do that. Well, that person might not be as smart as me. Or that person might not be as skilled as me. It's when we elevate ourselves above others. This is what James is talking about. He's dealing with this head on. I've been to Nigeria a few times over the years, and, and there really is a caste system there. I mean, there is. And when you go to developing nations, or a, another term is third world countries, when you go to those places, you really do see the discrepancy between the very rich and the very poor. There's really no middle class. And in a lot of these, uh, these third world cities, the rich actually don't drive through the traffic that's on the streets. They take their helicopters and go over the top of the traffic that's on the streets. When I was landing in Lagos, Nigeria, I was being instructed by a missionary assistant, and this person was saying to me, now listen, when you get out of the airplane, you're going to be met on the tarmac, and you're going to be met by a woman of this particular tribe, and they're kind of the lowest of all the tribes in Nigeria, and so what they do is they just serve all the other tribes, and what she's going to do is she's going to walk up, and she's going to want to take your bags, but first, she wants to kneel down at your feet because you have a high status, you're white. And I'm thinking to myself, that is not going to happen. I mean, I couldn't live with myself. But I'm trying to figure all this out. I'm trying to, you know, honor what, what's going on around me. I've never been there before. And I'm thinking, I, the, the Lord, Lord, you are going to have to help me with this one. You are really going to have to give me some insight when, when this happens. And sure enough, I, I got off the airplane. I was walking on the tarmac. And this young, young lady came, came walking up to me, and, and I knew what was going to happen. And she started to kneel. <laughs> and right at that moment, I thought, oh, I know what I'll do. And I just took her hands, and I knelt down with her, and I looked her in the eyes, and I said, I, I think you're wanting to pray, aren't you? <laughs> this is a good place to pray, right out here. Let's just kneel and pray together. So everyone around me goes, whoa. And so we just, we knelt and prayed. And I carried my own suitcases because I can do that. But you go to places and it might, it might not seem as drastic, depending on where you live in this nation, as it did in Nigeria or Lagos. But I think it's important for all of us to check our hearts and ask ourselves, what are the relationships like around us? How do we treat others? James is saying that when anyone in Christ and they come into the church, there should be no contrast between rich and poor. There should be no contrast that we're all on an equal playing field. No favoritism. That everyone deserves to have the red carpet rolled out. Everyone. And that's what I I love about being here 
Because in your hearts it is. It's in your DNA here to just show the grace of God and roll out the red carpet. Keep rolling the red carpet out. Keep rolling. By the way, side note, you're all God's favorites. How about that? You're all God's favorites. And that's the way that we want to treat people. And when we discriminate, we're messing up the very heart of the gospel. And so what's the application question? Where do you discriminate against others? I mean, just look around, take inventory. It is a hard thing to face. But it's necessary according to James chapter 2. These are things that we need to look at in our own lives. So, no favoritism because we reflect the heart of the gospel. And here's another one. No favoritism because the key, it is the key to revolution. No favoritism, it is the key to revolution. A few years back... um, we love to do this uh, in, in the summertime, and, I, and we're going to do this in a couple weeks. We just gather our, our whole family together. We let them know about six months out that this is the week that we set aside, you know, to hang out, to go on vacation, and just to be together, and I love it. It's one of my favorite times. It's kind of like Christmas in August, you know. It's just a lot of fun, and so we, 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 we do kids work their work schedules out, and, and we, we meet there. And you know, wherever we go, it's kind of interesting. Whatever community we land in, Annette always goes ahead and she looks to see what are the special events going on in that community. I mean, she, she really does. She wants to go find out where can we kind of fit into the community. And so she goes and she goes and she looks and she says, Ron, hey, we're going to spend the whole afternoon in this place in the community. And I'm thinking to myself, man, they're just with my tea times. I mean, ah, they're just gone, you know. But that's her. That's just what she does, and she's just beautiful at it. So there was this parade going to happen for kids, and she had our, we had our grandkids, and so we, she, she signs us all up for the parade like three months ahead of time, pays the registration fee. I think she did it three months ahead of time because she knew that I would be committed uh, to do that. And so, uh, so we do it, you know, and we get there, and, and there is like, seriously, there's like 400 kids and they're all decked out. It didn't matter. You, any kind of theme you wanted, you, you know, just come on in. So Annette had this idea. She said, well, we'll do this. We'll all dress up in Dodger blue. That's what we'll do. We'll put our hats on. Our, our, you know, we'll, we'll represent. And so all my kids, man, they got their Dodger things on. Their bikes are decorated with blue and white. And we get down in the middle of this parade. And all of a sudden, I hear this from the side. Boo. Boo, boo. And I'm thinking, who is booing four-year-old kids right now? And sure enough, it was the orange and the black. It was the giants. I'm sorry. And I looked over and I said, yeah, I expect that from you. I didn't say that. I didn't do that. But I couldn't believe the kids were getting booed. I mean, that's what happens sometimes. But here it is. Listen, it's okay to have favorites with sports teams. But it's not okay to have favorites with people. Because God made people. What James says here is when we start messing with this, we start violating the royal law. We start tinkering with the royal law. And he says that in verses 8 through 10. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. 
when we uphold the royal law, a revolution can take place. When we uphold the royal law, transformation happens in families, in relationships, in churches, in communities. We've seen it. We know the stories. But are we part of the story? And even to take it further, it says, Jesus says, hey, it's one thing to love your friend. It's another thing to love your enemy. And what I'm telling you to do is love your enemy. That's radical. Listen, don't think that following Jesus was ever going to give you something real comfortable to do because he's going to stretch you. He's going to knock you around a little bit because you need that in your life. And what he says is when you look at the royal law, you have to say, wow, where am I? Where am I according to the royal law? I mean, what's happening here? And that's what I love about the life of Jesus Remember last week I talked to you about radical hospitality and how that's just really affected my life? Just looking at how God's love is really and practically expressed through hospitality. And he started, he set the, he set the scene back in the garden and he says to a, couple, a man and a woman, he says to a man, I want you guys to, I want you to hang out here. Look at everything I've given you. That's a hospitable God. They had no need. It was great. And God is saying, I want you to know that you're invited. And whoever will come, let them come. We have a hospitable God who, who, who even came to us in the flesh and says, let, let, hey, come to me. And all you that come to me that are heavy, burdened, and laden, I'll give you rest. I'll be hospitable. I love you. And people picked up on that when Jesus would walk through the towns. They knew that his, just his countenance, they knew that everything about him was inviting them in to his life. And there's one place in Mark chapter 10. He's coming through Jericho on his way up to Jerusalem. And he hears someone yelling, Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And here it is. This is kind of like the church sometimes. You know, the disciples go, hey, 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 hey. Do you know who that is? You need to shut up. This is a really important person right over here. And he doesn't really have time to talk to you right now. What does Jesus do? Jesus says, hey, bring him here. I do have time. I want to talk to him. I've been waiting to talk to him. I've been waiting for, 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 for a long time to meet this guy because I love him. And so what do they do? They go get blind Bartimaeus. I don't think they went and got him all the way because it says that he jumped up and he threw his cloak off. The only thing he owned. He throws it off. He runs to Jesus. And Jesus says something so radical. He says, what is it I can do for you? That is radical hospitality. That will bring a revolution Instead of saying, what, we're, you know, hey, I, I need you to do these things for me. You know, usually when we encounter something, we're trying to look at how someone else can do something for me. And Jesus walks into the situation and he says, what is it, man? What is it I can do for you? Why is that so astounding? Well, it's astounding because of who Jesus is. He's the creator. He's the author and finisher of our faith. But what was so astounding in that day? He jumps over the caste system. He just tears it down. This is a poor, blind beggar. And Jesus has a meeting with him. You know, I can imagine blind Bartimaeus hearing that. What? You're asking me? No one's ever asked me that question before. Nobody. 
And I want you to be thinking about this in your life. When you encounter people, when you cross their paths, would it be in your heart, would it be in your attitude, would it be in your words to say, what is it I can do for you? What is it I can do for you? And by the way, I think that's a question God's asking you right now. He's probably saying to you, what is it I can do for you? Hey, jump on that one. Get with that one. Because there are miracles. There are incredible things that happen when God comes to you and says, what is it I can do for you? And the door swings wide open. Wide open. I love it. Romans 2, 11 says this, for God does not show favoritism. God is very jealous for people and when we show favoritism, we're, we're messing with his people who are in his image. We have no right to look at someone else and say, well, they have less of the image of God than I do. There are only two, you know there are only two people in the world that have the right to, uh, to label anything? And by the way, when you label, you don't love. When you love without the labels, that's really the gospel. But there are only two people that I know of in this world that can label something. Can I tell you who they are? One is a manufacturer and the other is a purchaser. Those are the only two people that have the right to label something. I mean, when you make something, you can call it what you want. I mean, I'm looking around and these guys are going out in space and they're naming these you know, constellations and planets, they're just naming them after their dogs because there's so many now. You know, they're done with their wives, they're done with their kids, now they're down to their pets and they're just saying, well, that's what this constellation is. They have the right to do that. They found it. They, 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 they saw it. And then when you get a car built, they, they, you know, they can call it what they want, the Spitfire, they can call it a dart, they can call it a charger, they can call it whatever they want. That's, that's their prerogative. They're the manufacturers. But here's the great thing. When you buy a car from them, you can call it what you want. It's your car. Hey, I love my rosy red pickup truck. I'm going to call her Rosie now. I'm going to call this car Molly. You can call the car what you want. Can I tell you something? God is both the manufacturer and the purchaser, and he loves all of us. He has labeled us as his sons and daughters. He has made us in his image. He's created us. He's made us. And then sin gets in the picture, messes everything up. So what does he do? He says, wow, i got to take care of this. My only son, my only begotten son, I'm going to send him down. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to buy him back. I'm going to buy him back. I'm going to purchase them. I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to pay a price for them. So all the labels that you hear going on in your head, whether they came from their family of origin, whether they came from your kids when you were growing, or younger kids when you were growing up, listen, all those labels don't matter. What matters is the label that God put on you and his son Jesus has put on you. And you know what he says to you? He says you are the redeemed, that you are his people, that you've been created in his image. That's what should matter to you. That's what you should hold up. Man. God is so good. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but they shall have eternal life. Listen, what would happen if we looked at everyone like God looks at them? What would happen? Revolution would happen. It would radically change the world that we live in. I mean, there's some of us just struggling with our kids right now, you know? It's like, man, they're not my favorite anymore. Man, they messed up. Yeah, that's my favorite now. They're just really compliant and good. It's all according to our standards anyways. Do you know how that works? 
You know how that works. Listen, listen, listen. You can never, you're never going to be good enough to be accepted by God. He's already accepted you. He's given you grace. He already loves you. He's telling you, I love you. I love you. I love you. You're my favorite. I love you. What I pray happens for me is that I would treat others the same way. The way that Jesus treated people. We have a wonderful model. Here's the application question. Where does the royal law need to work in your relationships? Where does that need to work? Family, friends, a distant cousin that you just can't stand. I don't know. Where does that work? What if you treated everyone as God's favorite? What would happen? There would be a revolution. And to finish is this, and I love it. I save this for last because it really is the best. 12 and 13, speak and act as though who are going to judge, be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And this is it. Mercy triumphs always, always, always over judgment. Always. You want to be victorious? You want to live an overcoming life? Then James says mercy will always triumph over judgment. I love that. Because it's his mercy that saved me. Would you bow your head with me? Would you do that? I'm going to invite our our, uh, worship team to come forward right now. We're going to finish our time together. But I want to invite you into uh, just a deeper relationship with the Lord. Maybe you're at a place in life right now, man, you're just, you're, you, might be, you might be struggling, might be going through a hard time, and you need to know that God loves you. God cares for you. He's inviting you into a relationship with Him. He's invited you in. He's saying, come. And the only one that really stands at the door of judgment oftentimes is you. You're, you're your most difficult, harsh critic. God just says, hey, let me come in. Let me come in. He's given us a wonderful gift in His Son, Jesus Christ, and it comes with salvation, it comes with freedom, it comes with wholeness, it comes with healing. It has all those things, all those things. It's written into the contract. God can't break His contract. The contract is um, called Genesis from, to Revelation. That's, that's, that's the contract. So if you're here today and you, you, you need that salvation in your life, I mean... He, he's, he's inviting you. He's inviting you. And I want us to do this. I want us to all pray this very simple prayer together. And I want everyone in the room just to pray it with me. It goes like this. Dear Jesus, I realize today that I'm your favorite. <laughs> that you love me. That you died for me. And you rose again for me. So today I accept your invitation. Thank you for saving me. I confess with my mouth and I believe in my heart that you are my Lord and Savior. God, forgive me of my sins. Heal my brokenness. I'm like Bartimaeus. 
Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Thank you for having mercy on me today. In Jesus' name. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.